Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the audio from body camera footage from the evening of April 24th here in Utah. There was an incident where a young person called the police. The police arrived. There was a suspect near a fence. An officer uh, instructed uh, his canine partner uh, to engage the suspect. The man was bit a number of times, sustained some injuries, and that was that. And then it wasn't until some time later, news coverage surfaced. Mid-August, news coverage surfaced, and the Salt Lake City Police Department launched an investigation into the incident um, that placed an officer on administrative leave. Also, at that time, Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall ordered the police department to put a hold on its use of canines until the department's policies were reviewed. Now, we dug uh, into that hold and learned that uh, some drug-sniffing dogs and uh, dogs that are used for their ability to smell things out, uh, those remain uh, active. But the, uh, the canine bite unit, uh, as they, they call it, that one is uh, and remains uh, suspended by order of the, the mayor of Salt Lake City, Aaron Mendenhall. Well, there is, in addition to the investigation by uh, the Salt Lake Police Department, there has also been executed and completed a review by the Civilian Review Board. Civilian review boards, uh, just to back up and recap something that you and I discussed a number of months ago, civilian review boards are pretty much exactly as they sound. They are they operate uh, outside of the police department. They are made up of members of the, the community, and those members of the community, together assembled as a board, will periodically receive complaints. You can uh, submit to this review board uh, a complaint you may have against a police officer. Maybe you have had some sort of interaction with police. You felt it was a little rough or uh, unfair or you were treated poorly. You let the review board know. And they, then, uh, they may call you, have a conversation with you, record that conversation, evaluate all the evidence they're able to gather. They may reach out to the, uh, the police officer in question. Uh, they will gather all the information that they can and ultimately uh, uh, determine 
uh, you know, how they feel uh, this uh, event went down and if anyone was liable for anything or if, uh, say, excessive force had been used. And then what happens? Well, uh, luckily here in the state of Utah, uh, these civilian review boards, as I mentioned, they, they operate outside of the police department. They are able only to make recommendations. So in terms of uh, internal police department uh, determinations, this review board can make recommendations only. And in a moment, I want to walk through uh, with you some of the findings of this uh, civilian review board. But I also want to tell you that I ha- have only shared with you half the story. The, the other half is this. And this news came uh, just earlier this week, and uh, we will get the full details on that as we are joined in the next segment by Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill. Sim Gill's office has filed charges against the officer in question. Felony charges. Aggravated assault. We'll have him explain his rationale behind charging uh, this officer. Sim Gill, historically, uh, has not charged many officers. And historically, uh, when he has uh, charged them, the the conviction rate has been relatively low. And so uh, it is that we will, in the next segment, find uh, out exactly the rationale brought to the table by uh, by Sim Gill as he made this determination as to uh, you know bring charges against this uh, this officer. Uh, so he, he, here's the story. Here is what the uh, civilian review board found, and, you, and you've heard this story, but the details here are are interesting. In the early morning hours, this comes from the the review board synopsis. In the early morning hours, uh, a juvenile child called nine one one and described an escalating domestic disturbance involving the mother and father of the family. The the father, a gentleman named Jeffrey Ryan's, uh, Mr. Ryan's, the father, uh, had an existing protective order in place, which prevented him from going to the home. However, it appears that Mr. Ryan's erroneously believed that the order had been lifted. It further appears that he was invited to the home by his estranged wife. Those are two details that I am anxious to discuss with uh, Sim Gill. If, uh, in fact, there was a violation of that protective order, uh, were charges filed against Mr. Ryan's? Uh, We'll find out. Uh, The synopsis continues, as a result of the 911 call, officers were dispatched to the home, including the detective and two other officers. Uh, The detective stated uh, he is a recognized canine handler who has taught others about the use of police dogs. He made contact with Mr. Ryan's in the backyard of the home in question and believed Mr. Ryan's was trying to flee and had likely jumped from the upstairs window of the home based upon his observation of the open window. Uh, this this continues. Uh, I, I would point out that uh, Jeffrey Ryan's, who is the complainant in this matter, uh, Jeffrey Ryan's is the man who was uh, who was bitten by the dog. Uh, it declined or somehow failed to participate in the civilian review board uh, investigation, and yet uh, ultimately the review board uh, determined that uh, that excessive force was used uh, by the officer, and uh, that that they. We'll pass that along to the uh, the police department, which will make its own determination as to what happens in the future. Uh, how? What do we learn from this? 
and what do we know about the use of police dogs and uh, and committing an offense like uh, this officer is now charged with making. Uh, those are all questions that I look forward to asking of Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill, who, as I mentioned, will join us uh, in the segment coming up. We'll take a break right now. And as I mentioned, Sim Gill is next ahead on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Live Mike. I am Lee Lonsberry. We learned earlier this week that a Salt Lake officer has been charged with ordering his dog to attack a black man uh, as he uh, pursued him in the dark of night in the early hours of April 24th. Uh, it was some time before you and I became aware of this uh, because, uh, well, it was not until August that uh, footage of this event was uh, was made available. Uh, and it wasn't until mid-August, August 11th, in fact, uh, when the, the news, when we here uh, started sharing the events that we had discovered, uh, that action started being taken. The Salt Lake City Police Department launched an investigation. Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall ordered the police department to put a hold on its use of canines until uh, the policies of the department were reviewed. And the latest update in this story is that news has now come from the office of Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill that charges have now been filed uh, against this officer. 39 years old, charged uh, this week, Wednesday, in 3rd District Court with aggravated assault, a second-degree felony. Uh, To help us understand these charges and uh, why they were filed is Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill. Sim, sir, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me on the air today. Uh, Let me ask you this. First and foremost, when did you first become aware of this case? You know, uh, as I mentioned, we became aware of it uh, when this was made available to the public, when the Tribune came out and did, did that story and the, uh, the video came out as a part of their investigation. And, uh, and so uh, this was something that had never been presented to our office, uh, as you would expect that it would be. So at that point, our office reached out to the Salt Lake City Police Department and said, hey, uh, wh- where is this? We want to see it. And uh, why, why don't we have it? And so uh, at that point, we reached out to them and uh, we fi- uh, finally got the materials. And then we got together uh, with our screening unit and our uh, attorneys, senior attorneys, and we reviewed the the reports that were generated in relationship to that, as well as the view the video. And uh, based on uh, what we saw and based on uh, what the uh, alleged uh, allegations that were, we filed the charges that we did, which was a second-degree aggravated uh, uh, felony. It is important to recognize that these are allegations only, and the presumption of innocence applies here to uh, Mr. Pierce, as it does with anybody that our office charges. But we certainly felt like we had the sufficient evidence to warrant the filing of charges. You mentioned that in your initial interaction with the police department, subsequent to seeing the the, the news coverage, you asked why you hadn't uh, yet received uh, word of this event or why you were unaware. How did they respond to that question? Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think uh, Chief Brown and the city, uh, I think, have answered from their perspective. And so I don't want to speculate on it. But certainly uh, we know that whatever the process was and whatever their internal procedure was, it had not. Uh, uh, certainly, I don't think the chief was alerted to it, but certainly our office was not as well. And one of the concerns that I've shared is that when we have issues of use of force, when we have that kind of force used against a, a citizen, 
And, uh, and there are internal processes in different law enforcement agencies that kind of say, well, we don't think it rises to any uh, level of concern. That really is why we have prosecution offices to serve as that checks and balances, because that's a legal conclusion and analysis that is really our responsibility and jurisdiction rather than the, uh, the, the internal process. So I think that's something for a worthwhile to go back and revisit, and that was, uh, that certainly was a concern that uh, we certainly were not presented with that. And when we became aware, we asked uh, uh, to be involved so we could do our job. And and when you commenced that job, what was step one for you? What, what did you start reviewing? Well, uh, you know, uh, we uh, uh, we looked at uh, uh, the internal police reports that were generated. We looked at the statements of the people who were there that were generated. We looked at all the different body uh, cam of, of footage and different things that we have, like we would in the screening of any potential criminal charge. What is the quantity and quality of the evidence that we have? What are the allegations? What is the behavior? Uh, and uh, and uh, so does it implicate a violation of the law? And if so, uh, what and under what conditions? And that's the process that we went through uh, with a group of our uh, attorneys. And the, we reached the conclusion that we did, that, uh, that we had sufficient probable cause, uh, to, that this was an aggravated assault, that we saw there was no resisting, there was not uh, any threat that was implied that we could see. And, uh, and so if there was not a lawful uh, basis to use the force, then uh, it, it, that force became unlawful. And then what, ki- and what, what did that uh, conduct yield? And uh, we allege that there was a serious bodily injury that was done to Mr. Ryan's, and based on that, we filed the second-degree uh, felony charges that we did. And uh, the, the the charges stem from the use of a canine dog, right? So a canine, so uh, sticking the dog on the on the suspect. Um, at, at what stage? We, we've all seen the video. We, we've heard the audio. At w- at what stage uh, do you allege that the the crime that a crime was committed? At what stage is is an assault uh, uh, committed? Well, uh, as we said in our charging document, that, that we believe that the the defendant did attempt with unlawful force or violence to do. Uh, uh, bodily injury to another, in this case, Mr. Ryan, which uh, uh, was the force likely to produce uh, uh, death or serious bodily injury. And in this case, uh, our allegation is that it resulted in serious bodily injury. So it was the, the uh, as we say in our probable cause statement, we had an o- uh, officers who made contact with Mr. Ryan. He was being compliant. He wasn't resisting. And uh, the use uh, of that uh, canine uh, was uh, unnecessary, which uh, constituted an aggravated st- assault, ending in the injuries uh, alleged. So, you, so the the moment the dog is brought into the picture, mm-hmm. that's when that's when uh, you allege that the aggravated assault took place. Well, the, the, it's not the presence of the dog. It's not that the officer showed up with the dog. It is the use the, the of implementa- the dog. Got it. Uh, uh, the use of that dog. Uh, in an unlawful um, way, which uh, caused the injury to the uh, to the Mr. Ryan's. I understand. H- how common is it? Have you ever yourself been involved uh, in the filing of charges that that involve a, a canine? Uh, no, this um, this is uh, at least uh, I, in in my memory. I think this is the first one that we've uh, reviewed in this context. Mm. And how about the how about Jeffrey Ryan's the, the the man who was bitten by the dog? Uh, any charges filed uh, against him for you know for for any of his behavior that evening? Maybe uh, stemming from the, the the potential violation of a restraining order, anything like that? 
You know, again, those those are separate issues, and uh, our in this moment it was looking at what was before us, and uh, and we will continue to review that issue uh, as a part of a separate analysis. But that is that is before your office. You 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 will you'll handle that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If uh, if it is uh, yeah, if it is uh, there, yes, uh, of course. And there are times we've had scenarios where uh, we've had. Uh, uh, Two individuals in a, in a DV scenario who may be a defendant uh, and witness, uh, but uh, again, that's something separate. Right. Our focus at this moment was really on the use of force uh, by this law enforcement officer. I see. Uh, going back to the beginning of our conversation, the communication between your office and the police department, it seems as though uh, you would like there to be some uh, improvement to the flow of information between the two offices. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think uh, uh, whether it's Salt Lake City PD or any other police department, uh, I think we need to be mindful that when we use force and there are allegations which may end up in injuries and there are internal reviews that occur, I understand internal reviews. But uh, if you're going to reach a conclusion that nothing wrong happened or there was no violation of the law, uh, in some circumstances, that's really our call to make, not uh, a part of an internal process. And especially when we have situations where serious bodily injury occurs, that's the checks and balances that we have in our uh, system of government here. Uh, that uh, uh, the law enforcement responds, law enforcement gathers information, uh, and when it comes to uh, articulation of charges or not, uh, those are that's a function that's done by prosecution, and that's a different function. So I think I think certainly uh, there's room for that improvement to occur because. Uh, certainly this was never forwarded to us, and uh, if there's a process that allowed that to happen, then mm-hmm. maybe that process ought to be uh, reexamined. And that's something for the, each municipality, and in this case Salt Lake City, to uh, to review as an internal matter. Ooh, we have just 30 seconds left. Is there a triggering standard that you would like to see if this happens, then you get the call, anything like that? Well, I think I think that the, you can certainly have internal processes to, uh, to highlight that, uh, to recognize that, but then you also have have a process to say, hey, does this rise to that level or not? And it's not that uh, burdensome to ask the prosecution to review that and to give you our findings. I see. Uh, Sim Gill, Salt Lake County District Attorney, thank you for your time and uh, an explanation of, uh, of the world as you see it. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, quick break. When we return, we're going to continue a series of ours that we've just recently started, uh, A Day in the Life of a Candidate. There are a number of Utahns right now that are competing with one another, seeking elected office. Uh, I have a special affection for Utah's first congressional district as a former staffer, congressional aide working for Rob Bishop. We spoke earlier in the week with Blake Moore. After the news, we will come back and speak with Darren Perry, who would also like to occupy uh, a seat in Congress representing Utah's first congressional district. Day in the life of a congressional candidate next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities 
of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.